I want you to kind of imagine this. Um, you meet a guy um, who just goes on and on. Uh, he's almost virtue signaling about how much he loves his wife, right? Just talks about how great his relationship is. I just love my wife so much. And then you, so you ask this guy, you're like, okay, so why don't you just tell me a little bit about your wife? What's she like? And imagine just that simple question. What's your, what's your wife like? Imagine that he gets frustrated and upset and defensive. He says, well, it doesn't matter what she's like. You know, her character is not important at all. What matters is that I love her and she helps me get through difficult times and our relationship just carries me through everything. We don't need to get into like intellectual heady questions about what my wife is like. Now, if, so, if, you, if that happened to you and someone got defensive over that, very simple question we would think, hold up, wait a minute, something is not right. This is really kind of weird here. Like, what's wrong with this guy? We would think maybe like his defensiveness comes from like the fact that maybe he really doesn't know his wife well at all and doesn't have such a great relationship with her anyways. Uh, I mean, just such a basic question like that to treat that as somehow unimportant and significant or like some intellectual thing, we would think is bizarre. And yet I have heard people act that way towards God. They, they say how much they love God and you talk about the nature of God and they get upset and defensive and angry about it, about who God is and his nature and his characteristics. And it's just a part of our, our culture that, that is like this. When people talk about the nature of God, what he is like, you start getting into specifics and people say, oh, well, you're just doing, you know, kind of heady gymnastics. Let's not talk about that. None of that. Um, it's almost like the, in our culture, we see trends of kind of a very heavy truth is relative, postmodernism, highly emotional stuff so that anything to do with questions about what God is like um, is just kind of relegated to like, oh, that's not practical. Oh, that's not going to help me out at all. That's totally irrelevant. That's for like, you know, uh, you know, dusty theologians reading old, old wooden books and rooms smelling like rich mahogany, you know, all that old stuff that old men read, you know, old books and leather books and leather-bound books, all that kind of stuff. It's relegated to just sort of like this kind of, you know, intellectual stuff that has no relationship to life, you know. The, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, you know, none of that, they, they don't need any of this stuff. But I'm going to prove that knowing who God is is very practical. It's very important. So, for instance, you guys are here at church this morning. So why do we go to church in the morning? It's just to broaden our social network? No, it's to worship God. And so um, if you go to church and you have no idea what God is like, uh, then frankly, you have no idea what you are worshiping this morning. And that's one of the, as I say, that is the reason why we go to church is to worship and glorify God, who he is and what he is like. And so this is why Paul starts off the book of Romans with God, what he is like, um, because when we know who God is, we begin to understand more fully and more deeply what the gospel is and, how the, and who God is in the gospel uh, fit together like a glove. I mean, they fit together like a puzzle piece. And so that's why Paul starts off with who God is right when he gets into this thing. He addresses that we're all sinful, and then he goes into this issue of a relationship with God and what God is like here. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, or you can say his invisible characteristics, this is Romans 1.20. Yeah. Oh, they got it. Look at this. this is so quick. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have not been like barely seen, like, oh, who knows? God's so hidden. No, it's been clearly perceived Ever since the creation of the world, so once God created, it's obvious 
to anybody who's a part of creation that he exists. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So literally, and I do mean literally, no one can say, well, you know, no one, he didn't know any better. People do know better such that they have no excuse and that'll play into those who never heard next Sunday when we look at that. But yeah, so this is like saying that we know who God is here. Paul's presenting that, going over that, hey, no one can say they didn't know anything about God, like they didn't know any better. It's very clear, they have no excuse. And so one of the things we should know about this text here in Romans is that Paul is actually making reference to ancient Jewish writings when he writes all of this. Um, and those Jewish writings are basically saying that we can look and investigate and analyze things in creation, use reason and conscience. We can come to conclusions and find out that God exists. And so the actual you know, ancient Jewish writing that Paul is appealing to is called the Wisdom of Solomon. And it's not a book in the Bible because it's not scripture, but um, it, it, it's, it was around the time when Paul was writing. And um, authors, they can say true things, right? You pick up a book and I've, I've never read a book that I have entirely agreed with everything the author said. You can say some true things, some false things. The only book I've picked up that I agree with everything in there is the Bible, right? So books have a mixture of truth and error, and so this particular ancient Jewish writing got a lot right. And so this is why Paul is quoting it here. He's agreeing with this ancient writer and showing that that is, in fact, how things are. That's the way things are. Um, I've cut down this quote because it's actually much longer, but um, I just want to give you guys a gist of kind of the, the quote that Paul is making reference to here in Romans chapter one so we understand more what's kind of framing Paul's background, how God is using him to express God's truth in his word. So this is from the Wisdom of Solomon here. Um, and it says, for all men who are, were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know him who exists, nor did they recognize the craftsmen while paying heed to his work. And if men were amazed at the power and working, let them perceive from them how much more powerful is he who formed them. From the greatness and the beauty of the created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. So from creation, you can see the creator. For as they lived among his works, they, will keep, they keep searching and they trust in what they see because the things that they are seeing are beautiful. Yet again, not even they are to be excused. Sound familiar? They're not to be even excused. For if they had the power to know so much that they could investigate it. So they're using a reasoning process of investigation. They could investigate the world. How did they fail to find sooner the Lord of these things? So you can see how this is you know, using similar language. Most scholars are saying this is the backdrop here for what Paul is saying. And so, yeah, scripture is affirming these Jewish writings that, yeah, we can look at creation, we can investigate, look around and see, oh, well, God exists. It's very clear that he exists. Um, just like when you see a, a, a clock or, no one sees a clock on the beach, I was about to go with that, but if you see a watch on the beach, you're more likely to see, like, who just, like, takes a giant clock and I'm gonna put this on the beach and run off. You know, I don't think people do that. Kind of random. Um, but you're more likely to see, like, someone take off their watch on the beach and you see their, you know, their wristwatch and you're gonna say, oh, well, there must have been a clockmaker and you can infer different things from that. And so that means we can infer certain things about the creation and then we can move to the creator, and so what are these things that Paul is thinking of here specifically? Well, he says, God has invisible characteristics. He is, God is spirit. Um, he is invisible. No one can see him. 
And that really frustrates my daughter. She's like, well, I want to see God, you know? Can I see him when I go to heaven? And we try to explain that you can see his glory, but you don't see God in his essence and nature and being. Because God is not the sort of thing that you can see. Just like how the color red is not the sort of thing that has a sound. If you're the kind of person that thinks colors have sounds, then um, goodness gracious, I don't know what to tell you. Go see a doctor at the very least. Get medical help, um, you know? So yeah, colors don't have sounds because colors are not the sort of things that have sounds. Um, and God is not the sort of thing that has uh, any sort of material structure. He doesn't, you can't see him because he's not material. He is immaterial and spiritual. And this is what's clearly taught by the words of Jesus in John 4.24. He says, God is spirit. The Greek word pneuma there suggests non-physical immateriality. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so again, you have Paul affirm over and over again in his holy writings that he is invisible. Very clearly also in 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible. Not visible, he's invisible. The only God, not many gods, one God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. And so the, the scripture teaches all over the place that God does not have a body of flesh and blood like we do. And so people say, well, you know, the old... The Old Testament, you know, you got God appearing like a man in a few places. Well, you know what? God also appeared as a bush. No one here is going to say that, oh, well, God's a bush, you know, or, or the Holy Spirit appears as a dove in the baptism of John. No one's been like, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit's a bird. No, God can temporarily like, manifest himself in his glory for limited periods of time to communicate to us since he is invisible. And so, uh, yeah, so God can appear in various forms to communicate to his creation. But that is not, you're not seeing God when you see that because God's not the sort of thing that can be seen. You can see his glory as Moses did as it clearly says in Exodus, but you cannot see God in his essence and nature and being. And so the Bible says, this is why it says, God is not like us in our Old Testament reading. God is not a dad with a beard. He's not a guy in the sky. There's no like space station God who's hanging out in outer space. None of that. He is the creator of all of space, all of the universe. Uh, there's nothing in the universe that is like him because Everything in the universe is, is mostly physical, and God is not a physical being. And so that's why our Old Testament text says, to whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that may be alike, that we may be alike. And so, yeah, the fact that God is invisible and there's nothing like him in all creation is proven by how God has revealed himself in what we call general revelation here, that God reveals himself to all people generally in all creation. And it's revealed in our reasoning outside of the Bible. So we can know things about God. It's what it says here. We can know things about God apart from reading a page of scripture. All people know things. That's why it's general revelation. It's given to all people. And that's what the Bible simply teaches here in Romans 1. And we actually see this revelation in the over 100 proofs in philosophy and we see for the existence of God. There's over 100 of them. It's quite a, I mean, that's more than anything. Um, and these proofs not only prove that God exists, but they prove certain things about God that Romans 1 is teaching here. These proofs shows that God is not a part of creation, but he is in fact beyond all of creation. He transcends time, space, matter, and energy beyond all physical things. 
And um, just a few examples of this, we went through a three-part series. I'm not going to belabor it. Um, but I gave my first sermon, the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Do we have a slide for that? Oh, wow. Let there be a slide. Um, so this is the Kalam, right? It says, you know, universe, you have a beginning or you don't have a beginning. Well, science proves there's a beginning. It's either uncaused, things don't pop out of nowhere. There's a cause. It's either personal or impersonal. Now, so what science says is that time, space, matter, and energy began to exist a finite time ago. So God caused time, space, matter, energy began to exist. So if God began that to exist, it didn't exist prior to that. So God must be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and a person of immense power. He's a personal being. And so that's because, because he, he can't be physical because he caused all physical things to exist. He can't be in time because he caused all temporal things to exist. He can't be energy because he caused all energy to exist. And so what you get from this is, or it was up there, but what you get from this is a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, spiritual being of immense power. And that sounds like the Lord. From Romans 1, it's, you can see his invisible characteristics from the creation, from the universe, and he is therefore beyond the universe. What I also brought up a few times ago was moral laws, mathematical laws, logical laws. Uh, laws come from lawgivers. Um, you can't heat up um, uh, the laws of logic or the laws of mathematics in the microwave like you can at TV dinner. You can't. You can't throw the laws of logic across a football field, and it's not going to happen because they're immaterial and abstract, and as such, they must have an immaterial foundation in the lawgiver who has the authority to impose these laws on all people, God himself. And so you get a from these immaterial laws an immaterial lawgiver, a non-physical lawgiver. And there are many other you know, logical and mathematical proofs that I can bore you with all. I could, I could go on for hours, hundreds of hours on all the proofs, but... Um, you know, you guys, you guys were, wouldn't, would probably start a, a riot here. I don't want to do that. So I'm just kidding. So all of these proofs, all of these logical proofs shows that um, the man in the sky theory, God's up in the sky, high and high, you know, that, that theory is just not true. Um, there's no such thing as, as, as a sky daddy. Um, and I know many atheists are going to say, like, oh, well, God just, like, every atheist, like, this website I see, they, like, have God with, like, a beard, you know, and, like, an old man, you know, or, like, cartoons that I won't mention. But, you know, cartoons do it, too, uh, have God wearing a, a man, like, with a beard and stuff. Um, and so he can't be that. He's beyond all of those things. And it's revealed in, in creation. Even if you don't read the Bible, you know these things inherently. Now, um, you might be thinking, okay, Nate's on one of his philosophy roles. He's getting all intellectual and crazy again. Let's just zone out and think about lunch, right? Oh, here he goes again. Nate, what does this stuff have to do with me and my practical life? You know, Pastor Nate's nerding out, and we're just like, it's going to end or what here, you know? Um, and actually, it's very relevant to your practical life because it, it matters in terms of how you relate and how you pray to God. Now, right now, my father is in Southern California. Um, not the greatest place in the world. Utah's much better, by the way. And I'm from California, so I'm saying that. Um, and he's, that means my dad is physically in Southern California. He is not presently with me now. Um, my, my father has a physical body, and the only way he, my father can be with me is if he's physically in the same room as me because all physical and material objects are located in certain points in space. It's the nature of being physical. I can't be everywhere at once. 
If I were, my job would be a lot easier, okay? But no, we cannot do that. Um, and there cannot, you, you, if something's physically located, they cannot always be with you. I mean, unless there's some weird thing going on, I don't know, but it's usually not the case. They, are, they have fixed physical locations. They can't be everywhere at once. But you see, God's not restrained by those sort of things. God's not fixed to a particular physical location. He is not physical. That's why. And so because he's beyond time, space, matter, and energy, he is not restrained by time, space, matter, and energy. And that means he is with you always through your victories in life, through the tough times in life, through your darkest times, he is with you. He's with you at two in the morning. He's with you at four in the morning and seven in the morning when you wake up. Or maybe if you're a teenager, 12 o'clock, you know, that's when teenagers wake up. So, um, and so he is equally with you, with all of us here at every point because he's present everywhere. He's consciously present at and causally present at every point. Um, he's with you. That means you're never alone, ever. God is with you. And I love the way that King David expresses this truth in Psalm 139, 1 through 10. He writes, Psalm to David, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay on your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question, meaning nowhere. There's nowhere you can flee from God. Uh, it's interesting, Jean-Paul Sartre said, he was an atheist philosopher, said that he could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. He could feel God convicting him. And he said he got so angry, he took, felt like he took the Holy Spirit, collared him around the neck and threw him in the basement so he could suppress the truth. But there is a presence of God. We feel this presence. And it says, where can you go? Where can I, where can I go without you? It's God is with you. You're not alone. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So God is holding on to you through all your pain and suffering. He's omnipresent and he can only be omnipresent if he is not physical. So even when God feels distant, even it's an emotional thing, we feel like God is distant. We feel like he's absent, you know, like this idea that God just kind of wound up the universe and said, later on. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what reason teaches. God is more closer to you than any friend or relative, even when it doesn't feel like it. God's truth must guide us in our emotions to remind us of this. He cares for you. He loves you. He's there for you in the most difficult, stormy parts of your life. So we can always call out to him whenever it is, whether it's three in the morning or 12 p.m. when teenagers get up. You can call on the Lord. Now, another thing that Paul says here in 120 is that God's nature and his divine power, so his nature and divine power has been ever, has been very clearly seen since the creation of the world. Now, when divine nature is used here, and to be clear, is talking about the whole enchilada, everything about God, who he is, right? You talk about the nature of Nate, that includes everything about Nate or yourself, whatever it is. 
So that means we know who God is. That's what Rome, it's a radical claim. And we need to know what the Bible is teaching here. That means we know who God is without reading a page of the Bible. That's wild. And we know who God is from our experience of the world, from reason, from proofs of reason, and it's written all over the place. They're looking at sunsets. Now, I need to be clear here. There's no way you're gonna look at those mountains. I mean, it's, it's sad that it's all, it's Cal, everything's from California, right? You know, you, you can't see the mountains, but when, when it's not dusty and crazy outside when you can actually run and, and do things, um, you can see those mountains so clearly, and they're beautiful, and you're like, yeah, God exists. But you're not gonna look at those mountains and say, oh yeah, well, you know, of course, um, Jesus is gonna be crucified under Pontius Pilate, and he's gonna be born uh, in Bethlehem. You're not gonna look at those mountains and say that. Like, no, you can't get that from those mountains, you know? You can't look at a starry night and say, okay, I know he's gonna be crucified. It's gonna be around, I'm gonna say 30 AD. I'm getting a warm signal here by looking at those stars. That's not what I'm saying, okay? It's not like you look at a sunset. No, yeah, he's definitely riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's for sure. You're not gonna get that kind of stuff. So we can't know historical facts like that uh, about God has revealed himself uh, uh, in history apart you know, from the Bible. We need scripture. I'm not saying, oh, well, you know, know God from reason and creation. Just chuck your Bible. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that uh, we only know historical truths and the gospel in a fuller sense when we uh, read scripture. So we need the Bible. We need scripture to remind us of these things. As Romans 1 says, we have a tendency to suppress things and the Bible kind of calls us out on that, if you will. So we need that through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So um, you're like, okay, this seems like a really extravagant claim here that Paul is making, just a wild claim that we have this universal access to um, who God is. And so how does that work? Well, think about it. Everybody you talk to about God, who they think God is, they're gonna say he's the greatest, right? I mean, if that's, that's like the most basic definition of God is like the greatest being, the greatest possible being, the most perfect being. Like that is like the most intuitive, straightforward thing of what we know about God. And we can get things from that. So we can know from that, that God doesn't just happen to exist, but God has to exist. He is the grounding of all reality as the greatest possible being. We know that he is infinitely just, holy and gracious. He is a maximally righteous and good and merciful. And so Paul is saying we know the nature of God, and so we know that God is the greatest, and so we can get that from reason and conscience. Now, um, when, we, uh, when we see what God is, like when we begin to understand him, we, we see, we begin to understand more fully of what the gospel message is and why it is the way that it is and why God, the nature of God, fits with the gospel like a perfect puzzle piece and I mean those big obvious puzzle pieces, not the, those horrible sets where you got all those small ones. It takes hours, it's really bad. Um, no, I'm saying like it's a big puzzle piece. It's really obvious, right? When we hear the gospel, there's a connection here. And I'm gonna show you why this is the case. So God is the greatest, there's nothing greater than himself. And so if God is the greatest, I'm gonna, I want you to kind of think with me here and play along. If God is the greatest, do you think he's gonna know some things or all things? Well, if he's the greatest, he's gonna know all things, right? If he knows some things, then I can think of something greater. Namely, he knows all things. So as the greatest, he has to know everything. He, is he better to be kind of powerful, a little bit, 
or like maximally powerful? Well, it's God, so it would seem like he would be maximally powerful. So you see how intuitive this is, that we can just know things by reflecting on God being the greatest. Um, and so um, God being the greatest, we can know other things. Um, like here's something that reflects about the gospel. This relates to the gospel. So now for you to be right before God and for God to accept you, what do you think his standard is? He's a perfect being. Do you think a standard's like, yeah, it's a curve, it's imperfect, or do you think a perfect being is going to have a perfect standard? Well, if he's the greatest and he's perfect, he's going to have a perfect standard, right? He's going to have a perfect standard of righteousness because he's most perfect. If he had an imperfect standard, then I can think of a greater being, namely a being with a perfect standard. Now, what most people often say is, well, I'm not perfect, and so maybe God's going to be, like, gracious to me and, you know, cut me a little bit of a break here. I mean, come on, that's, that's a little heavy-handed, Nate. And it, while it is true that God is maximally gracious, he can't just forgive you. Like, he's not like some grandpa or grandparent that comes and gives your kids all the candy and says, oh, it's okay, just do whatever you want. Burn down the house? Sure, no problem. You know, that's how grandparents are, right? Um, he's not like that. Why? Well, because if God could just forgive you, just whimsically and arbitrarily, then he is not infinitely and maximally just. So he is those things. He is infinitely and maximally just. And so what happens when you sin against the greatest possible being? What do you deserve? If he's infinitely just, well, you deserve the greatest possible punishment. What happens when you sin against an infinite being? who's infinitely just, deserve an infinite punishment. And so we can see from all of this, yeah, God's the greatest being, and that means because he's the greatest, because he's most perfect, because he's infinitely holy, you and I are in big, big trouble. Because I cannot be perfect for like more than like five minutes, all right? And neither can you be. I'm not saying like, oh, well, I can sit in church and smile, <laughs> you know? I'm not saying that. I'm saying your thoughts, your thoughts, our thoughts, we can't think good, perfect thoughts for, for five minutes, 10 minutes. We, we think jealous thoughts, angry thoughts, impatient thoughts all the time. God doesn't say like, well, his actions are good, so let's just let him in. You know, it's like, yeah, inside he was having like thoughts like a serial killer. That doesn't make any sense. No, God, the heart matters to God. And so his standard is perfect and reflects a whole human person. So when we understand who God is, we realize just how much we need to save him. We realize in ourselves, there is no hope. We are, we are really in trouble. We failed this perfect standard. We have sinned against an infinite being. We deserve an infinite punishment. And so what people do who haven't heard the gospel, this is what they do. They say, well, something's not right here. So I'm just gonna like, I'm gonna, you know, I will try to save myself by all the things I do. I will try to work hard and do this. I will give to charity. In the Old Testament and, and throughout uh, you know, ancient tribes, they'd sacrifice animals. They, they knew something wasn't right on the inside. So let's kill another goat. You know, let's sacrifice this, let's sacrifice that. Because they know there's something not right in here. And they're getting this general revelation. They're saying, I am messed up. I am, I am broken. What can I do to, 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 to help me here? And so they'll do more things. They'll sacrifice just so they can feel right inside. They know what's right or wrong. And God writes it on our heart and we know we are in trouble. And that's what Romans 2, 14 through 15 says. It says we can know the standard of right and wrong. It says... 
For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So we have something inside of us that God built inside of us. It says, we know right and wrong, and we know we are very often not right. We know in ourself, no matter what we do, there's always this feeling like we're putting dirt into just a bottomless pit that'll never be satiated because we know it's, it's wrong inside. And so we failed this perfect God. And so he doesn't require, like I said, 99%, it's 100%. But you see, the good news is the other part of this puzzle piece I've been talking about is because God is infinitely good and gracious, we should expect good news. He is infinitely good and gracious. It's not just God is only just, people focus on that excessively, but we also want to say he is maximally good, maximally gracious. And you know what? I read a great definition of grace this uh, week that really got me thinking and really captures the nature of God's grace. It says, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. And so we know that God is not only infinitely merciful and kind and caring, but he's also makes sense that God is also at the same time, they have to, we have to kind of put these together here, God is also infinitely just and merciful. And so if he's not infinitely just and merciful, then I can think of a greater being, namely a being who is infinitely just and gracious and merciful. So these things have to come together in God. So he is the greatest. He is a he is, there's nothing greater than God. And so we know with regards to his justice, we have failed. And so the gospel says, what, what makes it all fit together, the gospel says that God came down in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to not only show us the justice of God, but the immense grace, love, and mercy of God. Jesus was perfect in our place. Perfectly, perpetually, 100% obedient in his thoughts, even that. And yet he fulfilled the demands of justice, the infinite justice. Jesus, as an infinite person on the cross, took the infinite justice and wrath of God so that the justice of God can be manifested and the infinite grace of God can be manifested. Jesus fulfilled the standard by thought, word, and deed all the times we failed thought, word, and deed. And so that's why God can forgive you for every single one of your sins because that was already paid for and satisfied and paid off on the cross and so we can glorify God. We can thank God for that. So that God can be merciful as he's revealed himself in creation as infinitely the greatest, the most merciful. That's whole nature is revealed. But how do we receive this forgiveness? How do we receive in our place, all, we failed so much, how do we receive Jesus' perfect law keeping, that satisfaction of justice? Is it by working really hard, trying harder? Is it by making ourselves become really lovable and amazing so God will finally accept us? If that were the case, then it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be the infinite grace that God is. God is infinitely gracious. He's not like, all right, I'm gonna wait a bit till I love you until you really become something special. That's not grace. That's not infinite grace. And if that's, if that's how it is, then that, that God, the God that people make up in their heads that they have to be good enough to, uh, to, for God to finally love them, that God is not the greatest possible being. That God is not the God of the Bible. 
And so what the Bible teaches is it's nothing you have done, it's all Jesus. And we receive that by faith and grace alone. And what's amazing is that this fits perfectly with the understanding of God in nature. Like I said, this is a puzzle piece that fits together. So we know in creation who God is and that only matches with Christianity, with what the Bible teaches. And that fits perfectly, gets human beings right. We know it gets us right. And that's why I believe Christianity is the largest world religion. Because it just makes, it gets me right, it gets people right. We know something's not right in here. We're struggling. And, you know, when you factor in the preaching of the Word of God and the working of the Holy Spirit that convicts us, we know that we have created for ourselves the greatest problem, but in Christ we have the greatest solution. Jesus was perfect and he paid the price we could never pay. So knowing what God is like makes all the difference to understanding the gospel. And that's why Paul starts off right here in Romans 1. Because when you acknowledge who God is, you are just one step away just if you're being logical here, you're one step away from receiving the gospel. Gospel is the best news ever. It's the news that saves you from everything, from your sin and misery and death and gives you eternal life. It gives you everything, your shame, your guilt, everything we try to fill. And you don't have to do things to feel right. You don't have to feel like you have to do things to, to measure up because Jesus measured up for you. That means that the gospel frees us from this slavish demand that we feel inside to perform so that we can finally be something. Well, Jesus was already something for you. And so that means that the love of God is there for you when you fail. When you crash and burn, God loves you when you are most unlovable, most despicable, most ugly, because Christ, because of him, you have an endless, unlosable code of grace and mercy that can never be taken away from you, that will never, and it can never be exhausted. And that is, that is such good news. That is a life-saving news to guilty sinners like you and me. So that when we stand before God and he recounts our entire life, he will not see how much you failed, how much you messed up. What he will see is how much Jesus was perfect in your place. I love how my seminary professor, Scott Clark, puts it. He says, when I stand before God, I will not be presenting to him the last thing I did with my life. I will be presenting to him the last thing Jesus did with his life for me. So when you know who God is and all that he has done for you, it transforms you from the inside out. Because if, if even your spouse, your best friends, if they knew you fully and they knew all the sins you've committed, they would run from you and they would hide from you. If they knew what you were thinking, your own mother probably would run and hide from you. You see, God knows it all and he never stops loving you. He will never leave you nor forsake you because Jesus was left and forsaken in your place on the cross. Let's pray.